This is Steve Moss from the Midnight Ghost Train, and you're listening to MHOG Podcast with a bunch of pinball metalhead motherfuckers. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the MHOG Podcast. I am your host, Wayne, and my... You're what? I don't know what I was going to call you. I was going to call Co-host. you something. Yeah, I... Okay, all right. I'll all right, I'll call you co-host, but that sounds stupid. It's better than my lovely. I, well, so, I wasn't was not going to say my lovely. I was not. Well, you, usually it happens. But, but anyway, people, I'm the rum guy. <laughs> oh, yes. And thank you guys for joining us once again. Uh, you know, I mean, this is actually number 501. This is the first show we've done after the 500 episode, which I Isn't hope that crazy? everyone has actually listened to because... We've had a lot of really, we had a lot of fun with that show, actually. We had a lot of fun with that show. It was uh, um, not for the kids. It was actually the first, and my kid ended up on it, which was even worse. Uh, And you know, what's really funny is is the fact that it was the first show that all of us were on, and it was the last show of Adams. I know, it's bizarre. It was the first show that we've done where... Well, I mean, not really the first show, but it's the first show in a long time we've done where all all uh, what six of us were on, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was really fun though. It was a good it was, show. It was a lot of people on one time. It was it was absolutely chaos. But... <laughs> and and we had a lot of really 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 cool uh, uh, people sending us congratulations and sure. saying some really smart ass things like sure like, that's, what know, that's what they do. That's what they do because that's that's what that's kind of show we are. are. Yeah. Smart asses. <laughs> yeah. So. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, welcome well, what, back. What, what what's exciting about the new year and the new episode? Well, and it's five hundred and one. Five hundred and one. Everyone is ready for this. This is the new and in not improved, but you know the new stuff. It's, it's MHOG two Yeah, we're, we're coming at you with a lot of new stuff. Like we have a lot of a new lot segments of coming at you guys. In fact, we have our very first new segment. We're gonna launch right now. Uh. You guys know him, or most of you guys know him. Most of you guys love him. His name is Zach Cook. Uh, he's going by Kid Cook. He's uh, the former drummer of Black Creole. Uh, he's done a bunch of stuff out here. And, um, well, he is going to be doing a segment for us called Full Metal Music News. Uh, or F- Full Metal News, or I forget what we were going with, but... It's gonna, it'll, it'll say it in the in the, in the headline. It'll yeah, you'll know what you hear it, and uh, yeah. he's gonna give us all the info on like what's coming up in music, and you know, you know, just things that you know interest him and uh, everybody else. You know, he's gonna tap into every sort of music. It's not just going to be metal. It's not just gonna be rock. It's gonna be everything. He's gonna tap into all, right. all sorts of genres and and just you know, go with it like that. So, we would like to welcome. Our friend and you know Mr. Zach Cook for doing this episode and appreciate him doing this. So here's the first episode, uh, first episode, first segment of whatever we're gonna call it. <laughs> Here it goes. Long ago, a dark wizard used his black magic to summon Satan himself, Satanus. But win in a wrestling match, let me your guy. Let me. Ah, Wrong dickhead. Trick question. Let me your guy. Orma and the Metal Hand of God proudly presents. There are those who speak of a day when Orma Godin, the Fire Beast, shall bring a warrior into this world. To destroy us. To deliver us. There is some dispute about the translation, but having met you, I can tell that you are here to help us. To 
ideas. To wage war against the demons. To liberate humanity. Hell yeah! And now, here's for Metal News with Kid Cook. What's up, and welcome to the first ever segment of Full Metal Music. I am your host, Mr. Kid Cook, and this is music news with a punch to your motherfucking throat. Not really a punch to your throat, because I don't want to hurt any of you beautiful people out there. But let's get right into this. Slayer have announced their final North American tour with the lineup being Slayer, Lamb of God, Armand of Marth, Cannibal Corpses. This tour is scheduled to start May 2nd, 2019 and conclude on May 25th, 2019. Get the full list of tour dates on their website and Facebook page. I don't think any shows or any part of this tour is coming to Louisiana. I think the closest is coming, the closest they're coming is Dallas or Houston. But it's going to be sad to see Slayer go. I mean, they were groundbreaking groundbreaking band. I mean, Dave Lombardo influenced me to play drums, double bass drums. I mean, the dude is a monster in there. It's, gonna, it's sad to see that he won't be on their final tour. And of course, the late, great Jeff, Jeff Hannon, who passed away a few years back from cirrhosis of the liver. So, they have Gary Holt from Exodus and Paul from the Drummer of Testament will be what well, they've been playing with Slayer for the last few years, ever since Dave Lombardo quit, and Jeff Hen passed away, unfortunately. But it's going to be sad to see him go. I mean, he had some of the most groundbreaking albums, Rain and Blood. How can you argue against Rain and Blood? It's one of the top five thrash metal albums of all time, maybe top three, probably number two on my list. Joining them, like I said, would be Lamb of God, Armada Moth, and Cannibal Corpse, which is interesting with Cannibal Corpse, is because their guitar player, Pat O'Brien, just recently got into some really bad legal trouble. From what I was reading, he um, his house was on fire, and he trespassed into his neighbor's house, or broke into his neighbor's house, and assaulted him or something. But I do know, I just read that the drummer for Cannibal Corpse, his wife, started a fundraiser, or raised money to bail him out of jail. I read that... Pat O'Brien's bail was like $300,000 or something, but if he can't get the all this legal trouble resolved, he could be facing up to 10 years to life in prison, which is pretty crazy. Uh, I read that he showed up to court with a suicide vest on or something like that, and it was pretty crazy. I don't really know what's going on in this dude's mind, but... Hopefully they can get everything resolved, and hopefully he can join Cannibal Corpses on this tour, because it's a credible tour. I mean, it's Slayer's last tour ever in North America, with Armada Moth and Lamb of God. And speaking of Lamb of God, the guitar player for Lamb of God, Mark Martin, just announced his first ever solo album, with plenty of guest vocalists on there. And you're going to have everybody from Mouse Kennedy, from... Alter Bridge to the thing of Papa Roach to I think I even read that they're going to have Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. The late, great Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park is even going to be featured on one of the tracks, which that's going to be pretty interesting to hear how that track's going to come out. I'm really excited to hear that. Mark Martin is a musical genius when it comes to guitar playing, so I know that album will be anything short of amazing. 
Really can't wait to hear that. I don't think they have a release date on that yet. I'm not sure. I will look more into that and let you know for sure when a release date will be announced on that. But Mark Martin is going to be recording his first ever solo album. It's going to be pretty interesting to see what he's going to do outside of Lamb of God. Because Lamb of God, you know, the mighty Lamb of God, you know. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see what he does outside of Lamb of God. I'm working with all these different vocalists, too. I mean, not all of them are metal vocalists. I mean, Mouse Kennedy has a high on him that's like out of this world. And just to see that one track with Chester Bennington, because I'm a huge Linkin Park fan, you know, I was fortunate enough to see Linkin Park a few years back before Chester committed suicide, which is very, very, very heartbreaking. So it's going to be pretty exciting to see, hear his voice again on a new track. I don't know if they were working on the track together or if this is just like, you know, it had like a vocal recording of him and Mark Martin was like, Mark Martin was like, hey, you know, let me, you know, use this. But that's going to be pretty interesting to see that track. That's one track that I'm really, really, really excited to hear. I think that's going to be pretty cool. I can't wait to see what the tracks that features Mal Kennedy is going to sound like. Not the world's biggest Papa Roach fan. You know, they were pretty cool when they came out with their first album and their second album was really good too but they kind of got more mainstream and poppy which is totally fine i mean i know that's how they you know they make money it's a paycheck but yeah so definitely be on the lookout for that martin martin from lamb of god's first solo album coming out now the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees have been announced for this year, and we have The Cure, Def Leppard, Stevie Nicks, Janet Jackson, Zombies, Radiohead, and Roxy Music, all going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. I really don't think they should call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anymore, because you have Janet Jackson is the furthest thing from rock and roll going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's pretty interesting, but I seen the past inductees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, you know, they really don't. It should be called the Music Hall of Fame because you have pop artists, you have rock and roll artists, you have very few metal artists in there. I know Judas Priest was on the bill last year on the ballot. They didn't get in. They were not even on the ballot this year to even be considered to be in. Um... I think the only the most metal band in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had to be Metallica, and no, it's not a big surprise there. The Cure, who is goth rock, and they they're going in this year, very deserving. I think they deserve to go in. Uh, Def Leppard is going in too, who were huge in the eighties and still huge to this day. I just recently read an interview, um, listened to an interview that um with Phil Collins, the guitar player for Def Leppard, and he couldn't be more ecstatic. I mean, very deserving. I really love like the first two Def Leppard albums, High and Dry and Power Mania were my two favorites. Kinda got a little poppy with, you know, hysteria and stuff like that. Like I said, you know, it's the paychecks, big paychecks keep start rolling in and you're gonna write radio hits. Who's not guilty of doing that, right? Radiohead is going in, who I only know one song by Radiohead, and that song kind of, I'm kind of burnt out on that one song, of course everybody knows that one song called Creep, so kind of surprised that they're going in, but apparently they are a stadium act in parts of the world, so congrats to them for going in, 
Zombies are going in, Roxy Music, and The White Witch, Stevie Nicks, who, she's actually her second time being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think she's the first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame two times, because she was inducted with Fleetwood Mac, now she's being inducted as a solo artist. So, that is your first, that's your class, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees of... 2019. Pretty interesting. You know, no metal artists. I think the most metal artist on there is Def Leppard, but, you know, it's debatable if they're really metal or not. But, yes, to include all this, Slayer announced their final tour of North America with Support Axe, Lamb of God, Modern Moth, Cannibal Corpses. Hope everything goes good with Pat O'Brien. Hope he can get this legal troubles resolved. He'd be on that tour. Martin Martin, guitar player for Lamb of God, released gonna be releasing his first solo album ever with a ton of guest vocalists on there, ranging from Miles Kennedy from Alter Bridge and the late great Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. And of course, Cure, Dev Leverett, Stevie Nicks, Janet Jackson, Zombies, Radiohead, and Roxy Music are your inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. I would like to thank everybody out there for listening to the first ever segment of Full Metal Music. I'm your host, Kit Cook. I'm going to kick it back over to the guys of the Metal Hand of God podcast. Join us next time for another episode of Full Metal News with the amazing Kit Cook. I'm Wilma Golden, and you're listening to The Metal Hand of God. Man, that was pretty informative. It was good. I liked it. It was good for his first go-around. You know what I'm saying? Like, was, you could tell Not he was bad. a little nervous, a little shaky. You it's know, okay. you know, but, but that's what happens. You know, it happens when, when, when you're new hey, I know, to the show. When I, when I did the show the first time, I was a bit verklempt. Uh, yeah, you were. <laughs> You're still a bit flicklimped, whatever. I am a little bit. I also have a means. hole in my neck, so I don't want to talk about you it. You do have a hole in your neck, and it's not the one you're speaking out of. No, no. So let's, let's, I don't even, it's just crazy and painful. <laughs> if I have to go, it's because I have to change a bandage. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it okay. sucks. But, uh, but on a but, positive note, we've oh. got some, uh, somebody joining us today. We do. Amazing. We do. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Joining us all the way from somewhere in Texas, because <laughs> I'm a bad host, uh, our friend returning back, Mr. Parrish Randall. Hey, hey, how are you guys? What's up, Parrish? How are you, sir? Doing well. I like that somewhere in Texas. I like that. Yeah. It's like, it's, uh, are you are you in, um, you're born in Texas, weren't you? I, I yeah, I was born in a... Uh, a small little community right outside of Waco, 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 Texas. Nice. I've been there. They have a really cool Dr. Pepper museum. They do. They do. And, you know, I mean, Waco obviously became well-known back in 93, you know, thanks to David Koresh. The barbecue yeah. place, right? Oh, yeah, the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were barbecued, unfortunately. Right, That's exactly. That was... The government, uh, you know, uh, the Branch Davidians, that, that uh, whole... Horrible standoff that. Uh, yeah. We, I can't. I can't. I can't believe it was that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Me yeah. either, man. Actually, my wife and I, when that thing was ongoing, 
we actually drove over and having grown up in the area and being familiar with all the back roads and sure. ways to get around, uh, we were able to sort of, I don't know, uh, yeah, bypass all the highway patrol roadblocks and everything to, to, to a place where we could actually get a pretty good bird's eye view of what was going on. And we saw all of the military tanks and all these things just circling. Wow. What was a compound? And, you know, it was a, it was actually watching it. It was really disturbing to me anyway. Sure. Oh, oh yeah, man. Watching it on the news was even, you know, just unbelievable. I mean, I, what was it? You said 93? Uh, 93. Yeah, I think so. I think I believe I'm right there. And, and again, now I didn't see it when it obviously caught fire. You right. Know, but this was while the standoff was ongoing. And uh, I don't know. I just got the feeling that we were watching the government literally intrude upon people's home ground. There's, yeah, I don't know what went on inside the compound. You know, you hear the bad stories and you hear other people say that those things didn't happen. I don't know. But, you know, listen, I know that's not what this show is about, but what the hell we're talking about it. So, Well, it, we, we just brought it up real quick, but it, no, it, does, it does. For me, it, it brings up a good point of uh, – um, you know, you, you brought up uh, how it looked like the, the government was controlling that situation so much. And then um, it, it's it's weird to see we still have a very much a, a – it, it seemed like in my mind that that was one of the first times really that, that school incident like that, that it really happened. You know, that was – you know, well, those, for me. Yeah, that, those, those people, the Branch Davidians, they were a religious group. Yeah. And uh, they chose to live – in the compound in a communal type setting. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was so much, it was, I know the kids were involved in there and yeah. um, it was. Um, but my biggest problem with it was that if they, the government, if, right. if they had have wanted to simply arrest David Koresh or bring him in for questioning, the guy jogged every day. I mean, there were neighbors, you know, uh, living all around the compound at that time right. that were hot branch dominions that said, you know, Koresh jogged by their house every day. They would stop and talk to him occasionally. So he could have easily been approached away from the compound. But, but it, it wasn't about that. I don't think for them though, really, it seemed to be more of a, uh, um, the, the government needed the, uh, additional 15 minutes of fame to, to flex a little muscle and, and, show some force to try to push past and push through policies at that time that they wanted to get done. It certainly seems that way. I mean, if you recall, and I, I know you guys are young, younger, you know, much younger than I. So, um, thank but, you. <laughs> but, but during that same time frame, you know, you had Ruby Ridge, you had the branch Davidian thing. There was, there were, I don't know, several occasions where the government wanted to show its strong arm. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, certainly, you know, in all those situations, it led to tragedies. Uh, I don't know. I just think that we have a right, obviously, to uh, to believe as long as we're not harming anyone. OK, mm -hmm. as long as obviously you are, again, not harming, certainly children, sure. uh, not harming other individuals and everybody's consensual, uh, then you have the right to. Believe what you believe, worship however you want to worship, or not worship at all. I don't care, but it's your home, you know, and the government doesn't sure. have the right to, you know, to come barreling through with 
snipers and I don't know army tanks for God's sakes. That's, that's now, my opinion. Are you are you able to now getting back on topic here that uh, yeah. we've got you onto the show for? <laughs> but being able to being able to use what we've just been talking about, it, it actually leads me into a, one of the questions I want to ask you. Ooh. Um, do, are you able? Um, I'm sure you are. I mean, uh, I've so seen have sex. Yes, been yeah. in, uh, that um, you you can take like like a lot of artists, uh, you can take things that you see. Uh, in life and uh, experiences and emotions you felt during search, certain situations, even things you just watched from afar, you're able to pull that into your acting and and things. Have you have you actually ever tapped into a lot of that type of stuff? Maybe things, current events that you've seen that drew a certain type of emotion out of you that while you're on a set somewhere, you can go, oh, wow, I, I, I can identify with that now. I, I see what I'm what I'm feeling, you know? Yeah, I think all artists, if you're serious about your craft, as an actor, especially, I mean, and, and that's where I'm coming from. Sure. Anytime I, I'm cast in a role, uh, I have a character to play. And we see what's happening to that character in the script itself from page one through whatever. And the character by that time is the way he is. Now, my job as an actor is to find out why he's the way he is. Okay, so that I can play him accurately. Sure. So what I do then is... is I create a whole backstory for that character uh, based on the way he is in this, in the script. I have to go back in my mind and create a whole childhood and an upbringing for him. Right. Uh, things that in my mind happen to him to make him the way he is when we finally see him in the script or in the film. So you're really uh, taking that one dimensional character and you've really got to layer it out to, to really flesh it out. So it do. comes across on, on screen. You do. And that to me is, is, is the thrill of acting is bringing to life a character from someone else's written page. Now, and have you ever, have you ever done that and went, wait, I don't like the way I did that. I think there's oftentimes that, well, I think more times than not there, an actor is, is never really satisfied with his or her work. Okay. Okay. Um, you do a film and obviously you guys know that, when you do one scene, there's several camera setups, several takes, sure. uh, for many reasons, obviously different angles, uh, you name it. Uh, and ultimately, for every take you do, you have to believe in your director and have faith in that director. He's your lifeline or she. And uh, you turn to the director when the director said, when the director says, Okay, that's a, that's an, that's a take. Uh, we got that. Let's move on to another angle. I always find myself turning around to the director and asking, "Are you sure that's what you wanted?" Because there's that insecurity that exists in all actors. I think. Okay. Well, I, I hear you. Yeah. So, one of the most difficult things I found, and I talked to other actors, and I've talked to, I've got friends who've been in the business for 40 years. Uh, Joe Don Baker, being one of my best buddies uh, mm -hmm. and a mentor played Buford in Walking Tall. Uh, right. You know, I talked to him about how he feels when he's watching himself on screen. Mm -hmm. And he basically expressed the same, uh, the same feelings that I have when I see myself on screen, which is total and complete discomfort and horror. <laughs> okay. You know, <laughs> oh, literally, I mean, I, I think if you can watch yourself on screen and like yourself, there's something wrong with you. Right. But I still do believe that as an actor, that's a good thing because you you watch yourself and you see these things about maybe your performance that 
maybe nobody else knows notices, but you do. And then you say, Hey, I, I got to work on that. I want to, I want to do that better next time or, or whatever, you know, you're constantly in evolution trying to, to strive to be better than the last go around or the last film, you know, I, I always wondered that because, uh, I, you read, uh, some actors, you know, and things that they say, it's like, I never watched myself on camera. I always wondered, is that a good thing? It's a good thing. I think the, uh, the worst thing, not, and this is my opinion only, the, the worst thing that an actor can do is watch what they call the rushes, okay? Huh. Uh, you know, and some some films are made and they make those available uh, to the actor if, if he or she wants to see the rushes, meaning what you shot the day before, Okay. you can watch the next night in rough cut form. I don't want to see that, okay? What I want to do is, because because... My approach is to create that backstory, to find all the colors, the hues, the texture of the character, and then become that character and and tap into certain things in my life to bring forth the real emotions, whether it's tears, rage, whether it's laughter, whatever. It has to be real. I have to. That's my thing. It all has to be real. Otherwise, you're cheating the audience. You're cheating yourself. You're not doing your job. So once I've immersed myself in a character... I don't want to see the rough cut rushes and hear the words sound speed action and all that, that, you know, you're going to hear in the rushes because for me throughout the duration of, of making a film, I want to remain in that reality of being that guy. Well, you don't get to do that in real life. No, you you don't get to look back on yesterday. No. So, uh, which I don't know uh, if that'd be a good thing or not, because you may actually look back on yesterday and realize, God, I was a real asshole that day. Well, you know, that's the thing. (laughs) But with a film, it's a bit different in that you're playing a character that's been written by a screenwriter. And the director is in charge of bringing that script to this visual reality, okay, Mm -hmm. in the form of, of a movie. And so Michael Caine, great actor, British Mm -hmm. actor, you guys know his work oh yeah he had written this great book that i read early on and what i took away from that book one paragraph says it all as an actor when you step in front of the camera you've got two things you've got two things that you have to have and that's self-confidence in your preparatory work that you've done and faith in your director okay um and as long as the director is getting what he or she wants, then you have to believe that, that that for that character is what they want captured. Sure. That makes sense. And you know I go back and watch yourself and watch the rushes throughout the making of the process. Then, then you find yourself internalizing it on a personal level. That's going to affect the continuity of the way you may play that character. That that's just not a cool thing for the director, for the film itself. It's your job to give the filmmaker what he or she wants. Sure. I mean, I, and for those uh, listening that aren't actors, I think you can take something from that too, saying that um, that same paragraph, you could say you need to have faith in yourself every day and you've got to uh, have a little faith in the, in the direction in which you want your life to go. So the direction being the director, you know, so I, I, I can see, uh, I can see that going as a workable uh, philosophy for just life itself. Oh, of course. I, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the uh, magical thing about acting, and it's what I love. I say it's it's my natural drug because 
it's a high when you're out there in front of that camera and you're living as someone else when the director yells action and you've got that faith and confidence in the director then the moment he or she yells action the cameras the lights and everything they go away in your mind Mm -hmm. you're in that moment it's real and co-actors are not the actors playing those parts they become those characters as you and so you're experiencing it so you get to experience a lot of things doing these films that maybe perhaps you know in life then you can actually you know we draw from life to be actors but also i think as actors sometimes we're confronted in our personal lives with situations where we may make better choices because of characters we played you know i mean hey <laughs> i can see that happening now now i've also was told a secret well, i don't know if it's a secret about you Uh-oh. oh uh-oh we, we can edit no, no, it's not that. It's not a bad secret. It's not a bad okay. secret. I, I, I was told that 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 Parrish drinks the most Coke that anyone he's ever seen in his entire life. Yeah, yeah. If you mix the powder up with like a little water, it works. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> not, not <laughs> it's actually, Coke. It's actually yeah. I'm a Coca Cola. Yes. At, I, I do. I, I probably consume, especially when I'm doing a film. I probably consume. Three six packs a day. You oh know? my man, that's not healthy though. You know that, right? Well, I don't drink that much when I'm not doing a film. I, okay. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I only drink maybe two and a half six packs. Yeah. I, the only the only time I drink that much is if there's rum with it. <laughs> I I thought it was a hysterical like uh, a little a little point that um, your friend and ours, Mr. Ryan Clapp. I'm gonna call you out, Ryan. Uh, yeah, Ryan. Hey. He's uh he, he told me about it. It was really funny. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you know this, Parrish, but Ryan works is working with us now. Uh, he's actually doing um all of our graphic design, uh, all the stuff for our website. You know, it's really really cool. You know, he's been ever since. Actually, it's really cool. It's like ever since I came across this little movie that you guys were in, which was Circus of the Dead. Circus of the Dead. Right. Um, right. I've become really good friends with, you know, with you, with uh, Billy, of course, um, and, and Ryan, you know, I, I'm a rusty. All you guys are on, on my Facebook pages and we've all been really good friends. And, and it's really cool, man. It's amazing what you can do by just reaching out and talking to, you know, you guys you know, or anybody, you know, what I'm just saying like in general. And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's true. Uh, you know, and I, I got to say, Ryan is is it's just one cool cool dude he's a he's a good friend now and he was great to work with and he's he's a talented graphics artist or designer whatever you want to refer to him as but he's a great guy and uh you know when i when i first stepped on set and had my first scene with ryan you know he's a he's a he's a tall towering oh you could say it he's a large man he's a large guy (laughs) and uh he had to lift me and you know like place me on his shoulder uh, and i say i'm scared of heights but usually i mean you know a 40-story building right but, right you know this is being lifted upwards and placed onto the shoulder of ryan man that was that was like crazily intimidating because <laughs> what are you doing playing a parrot no playing a victim. <laughs> he was the uh, victim man yeah, <laughs> i know i remember that the the scene uh, uh from uh, circus of the dead yeah yeah Anyway, so being placed on the shoulder was, uh, 
he was carrying me across the circus floor and kind of like dancing around. And I thought, holy crap, you know, I'm seven <laughs> feet in the air. If I go down head first, you know, but I got to say this. And there was a scene where he had to like kind of drop me, but it was choreographed well. And, and Ryan was like super, super careful and cautious. And, but he didn't make it look careful and cautious. So right. he's, he's a talented actor and he's a great guy, you know, just a mm. big heart. He's a good guy. Yeah, he definitely does have a big heart, man. He's really good, dude. Like, I, in fact, uh, um, when when all this is over, we have a meeting with him after this is finished. So, I'll tell him. I'll tell him you called him a dick. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, don't tell him that. Don't tell him. Hey, he's too big. He'd kill me, right? And I wouldn't call him that anyway. But I will say that everyone on Circus of the Dead, honestly, and I've said it a million times, that was a really special group to work with. Um, you know, I walked away from doing that film feeling I was leaving family behind, you know, you spend a month, you know, with all these people and you do this on many films, but that film in specific, everybody bonded so well. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the community at large where we shot the film, they were all so supportive. Um, I don't know. It was just kind of one of those magical experiences that you, you, you wish you could have on every film. Well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be play yeah. ignorant here for a second. Um, Another movie, um, uh, was it a was it a one of Billy's movies? Did he do Jacob? No, no, actually, mm-hmm. uh, Jacob was done by Larry Carroll. Okay. And Stacy Davidson. Uh, Stacy had previously done. Oh God, I'm going blank. A slasher film that I was going to be a part of, but my scheduling, I was already committed to another film, so I ended up. I, I played that uh, small pivotal that small role in uh, Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really enjoyed it. You know, Jacob, again, one of those films that uh, I enjoyed doing because I'm a big fan of the slasher genre, right? Mm-hmm. And sure. out of all the films I'd done, I'd never done a straight-up slasher, killer, you know. Type sure, of. yeah. And so it was great. Uh, you know, my character gets the uh, the blade with the, well, it's a baseball bat with a blade sort of built into it. Was, it. it was a little <laughs> gross. It was a little gross. But you know what? I mean, okay. <laughs> literally, uh, we shot part of the film in the winter, and it was really like 30 degrees. Okay. Because the storyline's taking place in the winter. Uh, and so I've got on the, you know, the jacket and the whole nine yards. And yeah. And then when they call me back to do the effect shot, that shot you see, if you've seen the film, mm-hmm. uh, it was like 100 degrees in the summer. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it, yeah, and and I think that effect scene took probably about twelve hours to shoot. Yay! But, but it was, you know, again, I'd never been a victim in a slasher film, and there's a lot of latex and tubing and blood and retakes and camera angles and so many things. And working with the effects crew to be that victim in that film was actually, it was it was an adventure, man. It I was pretty it. awesome, wasn't it? I had a good you know, time. I'm going to say probably the worst job on any of those movies I would think would be the guy that has to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. The cleanup dude, the cleanup crew, you know, it's, it's a little bit different on independent films. Okay. uh, In that everybody, (laughs) everybody's got to do it and pitch in and help clean up. Uh, if you work, when you work on the larger budgeted, you know, union films, screen actors skill, uh, then suddenly, you know, and I found this out the hard way. I was doing a, a a larger budgeted 
show, actually, for TV uh, years ago. And after we wrapped for the day, I thought, well, hell, you know, it's the way I was raised. You know, when you're done, hey, you pitch in and you help clean up or sweep right, the floor. Right, right. You go do a little bit of everything. If, I, and, you know, if more people would think that way, I think the world would be a lot better. Well, I just have a really kind of a, a, a blue-collar approach to acting. I think, you know, it's my passion. I love it. It's artistic, but it's a job. And I think everybody should work together to create the best product and, yep. and try to help each other on a set. Uh, because no one person is more important on any film set than the others. Except for me. You know? It takes uh, everybody, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I pitched in. I start picking up trash and doing things. And suddenly, I'm being shouted at by, I don't know, you know three individuals who it was their job to pick up that trash and they had a union <laughs> and oh. I was stepping across lines and I was quickly, quickly told you and were. I learned, you know, don't, 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 well, quite frankly, don't fuck with somebody else's job. You know, yeah, you were, you were spanked basically. Yeah. Literally. I thought, Hey, yeah. I thought I was doing a good thing. Uh, no, but you know, on an independent film, it's different in that, you have everyone sort of helping each other out sure. and you have to, because you don't have a, you know, an 80 person crew. Right. right. Well, what, what, um, what, what have you been doing recently? I mean, I, I know you're busy, You've probably got your hands in so many different pies, but actually I've, I've he's done, married. Uh, Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I've done, uh, I've done actually a film most recently called Rift R I F T. Nice. Mm -hmm. And I play a guy named Roger and honestly, his that character was probably one of the biggest challenges for me as an actor because he's the complete antithesis of who I am. Uh, he, he's a corrupt bad cop who is a misogynistic, racist asshole. Okay. Nice. But you know, where are you going to pull for that? Yeah, that's what well, I, I was that, thinking the same exactly, thing. That goes back to pulling from a lot of things you see on the news and in documentaries about certain you know, sure. situations and um, what I what I had the most, I guess, you know, uh, apprehension about truly was playing this guy in the way he was written as that racist that he was. And uh, because that's something that I find abhorrent in people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it was difficult. But when when I read the script and the way the character interacted and the storyline unfolded, and the setup was what it was, so that the end would be even more, I guess, shocking. Uh, the audience had to see this guy for who he was throughout, okay? And it took some, I don't know, I guess you could say it just took some some real intense preparing for the character, and, uh, and I still approached it with, you know, that blue-collar, ideology that okay the filmmakers and i've got to say shout out to anjanette cluis who was executive producer on the film uh you know they thought enough of me to cast me and pay me well to do the film and in return if you accept the role it's your job to give them that character right. so i did that and, and but i say this the way i played it was from the perspective of of this is the guy you don't want to be. You shouldn't be this guy, okay? Uh, saying that, you, you know, you never play a bad guy from that perspective of he knows he's bad because, you know, bad guys, villains, don't think their villainy is bad. Right. Okay? But you play him in such a way so that 
you know the audience is going to see him, his deeds, his, and hear his words as something really negative. And, and right. they're going to be repulsed by it and not want to be that character. So in that way, the bad character like Roger, okay, he serves some good in that, you know, a lot of people in the audience will see him and say, what an asshole. I'd never be him. You know, so, you know, you did your job when the guy who left the theater goes, man, I hated that guy. Yeah, well, that's the idea. <laughs> that's what you want, you know. That's what, yeah. And, uh, you know, literally like with Circus at the end of it, you know, uh, the ending being what it was. I had this great experience up in, uh, oh, gosh, Atlantic City. Uh, it was screening up there and they flew me up for the screening. And uh, at the end, <laughs> when the credits were rolling. And it's, it's customary to sit in the seats, you know, and let the credits roll, especially at any sure. premiere. Uh, but as the credits were rolling, I had several women that started rushing up to me, and they were actually crying and saying, oh, my God, you did so much to try to save your kids. And, you know, they were, like, really moved by – and that's what you want as an actor. You want your performance for that hour and a half to be someone else's reality, okay, that they they are watching the film and they – they immerse themselves into the reality of the story that's being told on screen. Sure. And if, if you're able to pull that off, then yeah, that, that, that's the best compliment I guess that can be paid an actor is when a viewer b- believes it. Okay. Sure. As reality. So yeah, whether it's a bad guy or whether it's a guy you want to be, you know, you want the audience to sympathize with when you get that reaction at the end of the film that, that, that it worked, then that's sort of the, uh, I don't know. That that's the ultimate compliment. And that kind of goes back to not watching yourself. When I when I'm at a screening, once I've seen the film once and I always have it, it's in my contract. Before I do a public attend the public premiere, the filmmakers always send me a screener copy so I can watch it with my wife at home. Because my wife, I can depend on her. She's she's the ultimate, you know, realist and critic. You know, she's gonna tell me. Okay. Yeah, that's what they do. I want that. I want that. We've been together yeah. 33 years. Wow. And uh, ultimately, I watch it first at home. And then when I watch, or I, let me rephrase, when I attend the premieres, I don't watch the film. I watch the audience. The yeah. Because it's those viewers that they're the reason for the season. They're the ones that matter. Okay. If yeah. we please and entertain the viewers, then we've done our job as actors storytellers filmmakers whatever mm-hmm. it's all about the viewers never let the viewers down that's it well this uh, this movie uh, riff that you're working on um with, without giving anything away can you can you tell us a little bit about it yeah actually um again i play roger who's this bad cop and uh really bad cop corrupt his marriage is in the toilet um uh, he's married to a, a character named Melanth. Uh, Malanth, I'm saying that right, it's M-E-L-A-N-T-H-E, and she's played okay. by Anjanette Lewis. Joe Bob Briggs is also in the film. Uh, oh, nice. Really good, really good, talented folks. Um, and ultimately, his marriage is in the tank, and uh, he goes absolutely, I guess you might say, you might say crazier than what he's ever been, okay? okay. And simultaneous to this, a lot of people in Roger's life begin to, well, they begin to, uh, they begin to die in certain mysterious ways. Okay, mm. uh, and you know that Roger's involved in a lot of seedy, uh, you know, 
underhanded ventures because as a cop, he's on the take. And so you don't know what's going on. You don't know if they're out to get Roger. You don't know if he's doing it. You don't know what's happening. And it's all leading back to potentially endangering his wife. And he's wanting to kill his wife. And yeah, it's, it's, it's it sounds kind of like a deep script. The, the tagline for the film is, you know, uh, happily never after. Okay, uh. not happily ever, <laughs> but never after. And that's what this storyline is. It, it's it's sort of War of the Roses, you know, yeah. uh, each scream on acid, okay? Okay. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it is a complex script. Uh, and, and I love the script, too, because it tells a story, and I even, you know, I mentioned this to the director, Pedro, and... and certainly discuss it with Anjanette. It tells a story that could, without the violence, yeah, obviously there's, it's it's an R-rated flick, so you've got a lot of scenes in there, obviously, that are pretty intense and pretty violent and, mm-hmm. you know, graphic. Um, and there's some, you know, there, there, there's some sex scenes in there, too. Uh, but it's a film that, honestly, based on its story and the way it's delivered, w- it could be it's it could be a lifetime movie, but it's a lifetime movie amped up in a horrific way. Okay, I gotcha. which for an actor, you know, I was both terrified to play this guy based on you know the kind of character he was, but I was excited to play this film that to play in this film that really told this very very complex story. Okay, uh, and it's got a great twist at the end. So yeah, that's that's well, I, I'm I, I'm trying to be you know as uh, <laughs> Ambiguous as I can be without giving too much. Yeah, yeah. But I'm well, trying to also give you the feel of the film. Yeah. Is it? Is there a time we can uh, expect maybe this to be out soon? Or I know they're planning a, uh, a premiere screening that okay. they're to notify me of a date anytime soon. And I'm told that they already have a pre-distribution deal. Sweet I don't nice. have it yet. So, but it's always great when you work on a film where a pre-distribution deal is in place. Uh, because as you guys know, if you talk to other actors or filmmakers, distribution now, and it's always been, that's the big challenge for independent films. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, and especially now, I mean, I started as a principal actor, you know, playing the leading role of Blythe Remington in The Quick and the Undead back in 2005. Prior to yeah. that, I've done bit parts and walk-ons in the Walker, Texas Ranger show and LAX with Heather Locklear and mm-hmm. different people, but... In 05, I got that first principal lead role. I was that lead villain. And that was, as I, you know, speaking of Billy a moment ago, Billy and I have had number, a number of talks about, you know, distribution and how the industry has evolved with regards to how films are seen. Um, back in 05, we completed the film. And within six months, it was being premiered at Mans on Hollywood Boulevard. Wow. wow. And... Anchor Bay Entertainment had picked it up for domestic distribution on D- on, uh, excuse me, on DVD. And that's back when they still had the mom and pop video stores and they still had certainly Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, Hastings. Sure. So, man, Anchor Bay was printing out these huge, you know, posters that were hanging on walls, Quick and the Undead, you know, uh, now on DVD. It was that kind of tail end of what I call the golden era of home video. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Does it pretty much died after that? Yeah, after that, everything went the way of what is now, you know, streaming video pay-per-views, which is fine. The problem with that is there's so much material out there, so many films being made, 
that it makes it extremely difficult oftentimes for a filmmaker to A, get the distribution deal that maybe perhaps his film deserves. Mm -hmm. And when I say deserves, meaning A, just to get the distribution deal, but B, uh, whereas back in 05, they would actually, you know, pay a licensing fee to the filmmaker. You know, there would be some upfront cash, which would go back to the investors and, and you know, sure. generally pay the investors back for a large portion of what they had already put into the film. Nowadays, that doesn't happen, which makes it more difficult for the filmmaker to gather the funds that he or she needs to make their film. Mm -hmm. Makes it more difficult also, as the film is, you know, playing out there for the filmmaker to, I guess you might say, make his or her money back. Okay, because it's just an unfortunate fact that within the film industry, there's always been, quote, creative accounting, end quote. Okay. Yeah. But at least back when you had hard copy DVDs, Blu-rays, et cetera, even back in the days of VHS, you know, you knew how many copies of the movie were in each unit that was sold. You could kind of keep tally yourself. Now, really... You can't if it's only if it's streaming on a pay-per-view basis out there for folks, which is great and convenient. But it, it again, it, how does a filmmaker really keep up with whether or not he or she's getting their just there? Same same thing with music artists. Yeah, I was gonna say I mean, the same thing. Same. It was like because uh, I just noticed uh, recently uh, a friend of mine uh, from the show actually, uh, Kyle Thomas, who's who's an exhorter, posted a a, a thing about uh, uh, what is it? Um, uh, Spotify streaming and how you know all these bands are like oh thank you guys I got like 10,000 fans and blah 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 on the Spotify stuff well he broke it down and showed like Spotify makes like I don't remember how many like yeah. 90 million dollars a year uh, and then it shows like it would take uh, I think it was like 10,000 downloads for one song to make a person Make a band minimum wage for a day, right? Right, you know? and that's that's the unfortunate, you know, downside of the industry. And, and make no mistake, I mean, even back in the seventies, before home video, the sixties, the fifties. Well, in the fifties, you know, through the fifties and early to mid sixties, you had the studio system, and you know, actors, directors were paid their flat fee based on the contracts they had with the studios. Right. Um, then came the fall of the studio era, and that's when it all became, you know, began, uh, became based on your day rate and right. residuals based on how much the film made. Uh, and that's when the creative accounting entered into the equation. Uh, Joe Don Baker told me uh, years ago, he, he said, just always remember as an actor or if you're a filmmaker, which I'm not, I'm only an actor. But uh, Joe Don told me, he said, just know they're going to fuck you. Just remember, you've got to you've got to <laughs> learn how to minimize the fucking, you know? Yeah, you <laughs> got you to put a, enough lube to be OK with it. Exactly. And, and that's a sad thing, because I really think that if everyone were honest and again, I go back to I know that's dreaming. It's not a perfect rule, nor will it ever be. But if it were a situation where everybody could work together and be honest, then everybody could profit, better films could be made, and more films could be made for the viewing public to actually consume. Yep, sure. 
just the same thing with the, the music industry. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a shame that again people get ripped off. And and what you just described to me with Spotify, I think that's totally ripping the artists off. Oh yeah, it's it's basically uh, it's because we live in a throwaway society. Yeah. That's all it is. I mean, and it's every everybody like uh, like the Spotify people, and the, which which is fine because there's a lot of things on Spotify that I don't own and I'd like to hear, you know, stuff like that. Um, I don't actually pay for Spotify, so you know, I'm one of those guys who just you know gets uses the free account and says screw that. I'm not paying ten dollars a month to yeah. to some company. Yeah. I'll use the free one, and if I can't listen to half the things, and oh well, whatever. I have CDs, you know. Well, I, I I still buy. I like to own my stuff, you know. Well, see, okay, that was going to be my question to you guys. See, I'm I'm still old school. I want to actually have some, a, a tangible product in my hand. I, I want the DVD or the Blu-ray. I want the cover art. I want to set it on my shelf. I want to be able to, you know. Look what I got. Look how cool this yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I do understand that there are several generations that are are not of that era when that was the way to see movies at home. Uh, right. There's a lot of folks out there and, and I totally respect their ideology that, you know, they just rather simply stream it, watch it. And that's it. Sort of like the throwaway. And forget ideology. about it. Yeah. 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 They, well, they, they can, they can buy them and save them, stick them on their cloud now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I always feel bad for the guy that was out there, the, who's the uh, the guy like we are that likes to own the stuff that, that has to be tangible. But he's there's some poor guy out there that made all the wrong choices. He's got a he's got like like a hundred and fifty laser disc and like <laughs> ten thousand beta beta discs, and he's like, what am I doing? You know? Yeah, because yeah, you, you, you don't have the yeah. machines anymore. That's right. Those those VHS. And beta tapes, there's collectors out there that, that literally scramble to collect them. I'm not, you know, sure why. I mean, granted. Hey, you know, I belong I belong to a Facebook group called VHS I, something I, or other. I can get it in a way because, I mean, they are now obsolete and that they're no longer being made. And uh, so it's nostalgic, et cetera. Okay. Well, it's, it's, cool. it's And you've got the product. You know, you've yeah. got the images. You know, just like people stopped using records for so long, but then they realized you're going to get the better sound quality, the more true quality off of vinyl. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, talking about the VHS tapes, you're talking to a guy here who, by the way, you know, before VHS, I was collecting movies on 16 millimeter film. That's mm -hmm. badass. 11, 12, 13 year old kid. I worked for my dad. He had a plumbing company. I'd save my money and buy a movie. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, and we're talking in those days. On the 16 millimeter, in the 16 millimeter format, a full length feature film came on seven to eight reels. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you had the projector and you changed out the reels. But I still got my copies of The Exorcist and different films that at that time were released to 16 millimeter. Yeah, I've, I've got a half dozen uh, eight millimeter films that, but you, you couldn't show them at family functions. Right, right. Well, that, yeah, they had those too. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I had a, and I still got a few. I had a few of those and still have them. My wife certainly would kill me if I pulled them out. Uh, sure. But then once VHS came into play, I obviously became that VHS collector addict. And I've got probably 2,000 VHS tapes. That's awesome. Uh, you, and, you want some more? I'll send them to you. <laughs> well, that's that's a problem. I have 2,000 VHS tapes, and I do not have a VHS player any longer that you know 
Right, that's my problem too. I was like, I have so much in storage, but that don't. I think I, I've got four of them downstairs. Players, nope. players. What? The one thing I've got that I'm really proud of, as far as a VHS tape, is, uh, you know, I, I was really good friends with the late Marilyn Burns. I love yes. that lady with all my heart and soul, and she was a true, true good, good person, true, true heart, true soul. She was, but. Uh, I was talking with her. We used to talk several times a week on the phone. And uh, I was talking with her one day, and she you know, said something about, uh, you know, well, you know, it took forever for Chainsaw to hit VHS. It didn't really make it on the VHS until Wizard, you know, struck a deal after all the licensing and who owned what and what percentages went to whom till all that was settled. You know, and then Wizard actually released it on, on VHS. And I told her, I said, yeah, but I had it on a VHS release from Astral Bellevue, a, a company based in Canada. Uh, oh, shit. I had a copy of it that was released in 1980 on VHS. Wow. And she's like, are you shitting me? I'm like, no, seriously. And I mean, she had no idea that it had been released prior to all of the yeah financial disagreements, you know, I guess yeah. that were, you know, that sort of plagued the film for a while there. It had been released in Canada on VHS several years before it was released by Wizard here in the U.S. So I've, so I've got this Canadian release That's with the cover cool. art and everything. And uh, I've got it in a glass case, actually. So it's wow. kind of, Well, yeah, because it's probably worth a good penny. I guarantee you people be, would pay, uh, uh, like, at least 30 cents for that. Well, you know, I'm just kidding. I'm so fucking with you. Well, literally, <laughs> you, you can buy it. On, I, I've seen other copies of the Canadian release out there on, like, eBay and they don't sell for much. For me, it's more of a sentimental thing. Well, yeah, you know? it's, it's your first. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, uh, John John Dugan and Ed Neal and folks said, you should bring that and we'll, we'll all sign it for you. So I've got to. One Dude, of these you need to get that signed. Yeah, you definitely need to do that because uh, I hate to say this, but they are kind of fading away a little at a time. Well, that, that's, you know, you, we're talking about Chainsaw. I want to mention, you know, um, I want to mention the the gas station down in Bastrop, Texas, and the yearly cult classic convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw you, I you saw know, you going to that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a great show uh, that was launched by Roy and Lisa Rose. They own the gas station, and it, it's it's a horror convention with a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you will, motif, for lack of better phrasing, right? And uh, they, this last year, this gentleman, I cannot recall his name, and if he's out there, if he listens to this, forgive me for not recalling the name, but they had had built this, and and fans donated to pay the gentleman for having built this. It's a bench, a memorial bench made out of, like, I don't know, metal and you name it. It's a memorial bench with a chainsaw that's built into the bench with photo in memoriam of those cast members that have moved on um and it's it you know it's got the the whole texas chainsaw massacre 1974 and and again photos of those cast members that have moved onwards it's really impressive and it's now on display at the gas station also owned by again like i said roy and lisa uh, which is now a barbecue place as well as this kind of uh, tremendous tribute building to one of the you know locations used in that original Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. That is so cool. That is uh, very cool. 
And when you go in there, by the way, if you ever get down to Austin, Bastrop is just right outside of Austin. Great barbecue and horror memorabilia that you can't find anywhere else. I mean, that's funny. That's a funny combination. Nice. Yeah. It, I mean, if, when I went in there the first time, I thought, holy Christ, you know, with all the memorabilia, and I have a real tendency to want to wanna collect. I collect a lot of, you know, 8x10s and things and lobby cards. and But their memorabilia goes beyond that. And, I mean, <laughs> let me just say, if I went in there with a, a ton of money, I could probably blow every penny. You know, wow. <laughs> it's just, you know. But it's uh, amazing. So I want to shout out the gas station to anybody in that area. And you guys, too, if you're ever in yeah. the area, oh, check it out. Got to go. Got to go. Um, well, we're going to take a few minutes here because we have to drop one of our sports segments right in this area right here. So, everybody, sit back, give us a few minutes, and enjoy. Uh, what the hell is he the calling big, it? The big one. Enjoy his show. Yeah, I know, but he's he's calling it something. The big one's Wacky World of Sports or some, yeah, I believe that's it. some weird shit like that. I don't know, but enjoy it. He's coming up right here. variety of sports, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. Hi, everybody! Oh, false start. That's seven points removed for Gryffindor. And oh, a surprise finger in the Flippy one, flippy two, flippy three, aerial spready, flippy four, descending spready, bouncing jack-in-a-box spready, Sonya Blade high kick, roly-poly, Jackie Chan bullshit. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. All right, grab your socks and hold your jocks. It's Sports Talk with the big man himself, Rusty. Yeah. Hello there, boys and girls. It's your old buddy, Big One, back one more time with some, some good sports for you. I found you a good one. I found you a good one. We're gonna we're gonna have some discussions about this later on. Um, so sit back, relax, pour your favorite adult cocktail, and take a journey with me into the wonderful wide world of really really fucked up sports. The name of this sport is Buzz Kashi. B U Z K A S H I. If you want to look it up. It literally translates in the Persian language to goat pulling. That's right, goat pulling. It, uh, it began somewhere between the 10th and the 15th century by the Central and Eastern Asian nomadic tribes. You know, basically Russia, China, Mongolia, people like that. Um, it went on until 1930. And then it stopped for a little while, and then it started back up again. I'll go into that in a little bit later, uh, a little later in this episode, so you'll understand. Um, basically what it is, okay, you have two teams of ten men each on horseback, and they play five-on-five five on a soccer field or a pitch for the people across the pond, if anybody's listening. They play five-on-five. And they play 45-minute halves with a 15-minute halftime. And then I'm assuming that they switch out or they substitute at halftime. You know, horses get tired. 
people get tired. I don't know. Okay. They play this game on the soccer pitch, and there's a goal at each end, which basically consists of a flag with a circle around it. And the whole point of this game, as it turns out, is to take a beheaded and disemboweled calf or a goat, if they can't get a calf or a goat, and they take it and run it up and down this field while on horseback and try to throw it into the score circle. Now, from what I found, the calf, you know, the baby horse, the calf is the preferred ball of this sport because, as it turns out, goats have a tendency to disintegrate during the game, which is really fucking disgusting. But, you know, it's a rough sport, and goats... Goats apparently aren't as tough as calves. I don't know. So what they do is they take this goat or a calf, preferably a calf, 24 hours before the game, they will take this goat or calf and they will behead it and disembowel it and chop off two of its limbs. And then they soak it in ice cold water for 24 hours because, you know, it makes it tougher. You you just can't play with a, a freshly dead calf. Yeah, apparently you can't do that. So that's what they have to do. And then they pour sand in the dead carcass to make it heavier. And they start five on five. You know, guys wear big heavy clothes and helmets and shit like that. You know, five on five. They ride out. They try to pick up the goat. They try to go down the field. They try to throw it in the scoring circle. And apparently... Some of these games have lasted for several days because, you know, you can't end the game until somebody wins. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering, you're using a dead calf or a dead goat. If the game lasts a couple days, that son of a bitch has got to get pretty right, don't you think? I mean, it's going to be disgusting. It's going to start rotting and, oh, it's going to be uh, the smell. I just can't imagine the smell. Anyway. That's basically what they do. They throw it in the scoring circle. They play until there's a winner. And, you know, I, you win. You win. Um, okay, now I'm going to go back a little bit to why the sport ended in 1930 and then resumed. As it turns out, in 1930, in Afghanistan, this sport was ended during the Taliban rule of Afghanistan. Uh, they deemed it inhumane. Um, the only thing I can think of is they were running out of girlfriends because of the sport, so they had to end it. Because, you know, once you disembowel and cut the head off a goat, can you still fuck it? I don't know. I'm not an expert in this field, but I got to think that might have been part of the problem. So, once the Taliban was disbanded in Afghanistan, the sport resumed because, you know, it's just good fun. It's just good fun. How can you not have fun playing this game? And I got to think the spectators, you know, if you go to a baseball game, you got a chance of catching a foul ball. You go to a hockey game, sometimes a puck gets flung in the stands and you get to keep it. You know, it's a good souvenir. NFL game, football goes in the stands, whoever catches it gets to keep it. You know, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's a pretty good souvenir you get for going to a game. You know, aside from all the other shit you can buy, like T-shirts and hats and all that crap. But I got to think, in this sport, Buzz Kashi, if you get 
a part of the goat as a souvenir. Do you really fucking want it? Do you really want it? I mean, who has a collection of goat legs on their mantle? Hey, this was from Bozkashi 1998. Hey, this was from Bozkashi 2002. You know, I sat front row and that one got smeared with fucking blood. It was fantastic. See, this is, I don't know, these, these Middle Eastern people, I have respect for them because, I don't know, they're, they're tweaked. Uh, I mean, really, you can't, you can't find a ball. You can't find a ball. You you gotta play with a dead goat. Uh, Look. I've seen shit on TV where these Afghanis are throwing rocks and shit at tanks. Why don't you save one of them rocks for the Buzzkashi game later? Stop killing goats. Come on, people. And baby calves are delicious. Have you not had veal? Oh, my God, it's good. Tender and juicy. Mmm, and flavor. If you cook it long enough and you cook it the right way, it's just tasty. I mean, goats, goats are edible, too. I mean, who doesn't like goat cheese pizza? I mean, goat cheese is delicious. Can't get milk from a dead goat. Yeah, so, uh, and as it turns out, I, I just I just saw this. As it turns out, really, really great Buzzkashi players can be sponsored by wealthy Afghanis. So, if you're really, really good at riding a horse down a field with a dead fucking goat in your hand, you could get a sweet sponsorship deal from fucking Nike or something. Nike, Adidas, and Reebok would be all over this shit. I can see the ads now. Fades, camera out, wide open field, all you can see is a flag off in the distance. Then you start hearing the thundering clap of hooves on the field. Here they come. They're getting louder and louder and louder. And then, boom! Here comes a whole team of horses running past you. A dead goat in tow. They're gone. All you can see is horse ass and goats. And then you see the carcass hit the ground. The crowd cheers. Everybody goes wild. The team of horses turns around. They ride back towards the camera. Somebody gets off of their horse. Jumps down. Strikes a pose. And then slam. Swoosh comes across the screen. Just do it, Nike. That would be fucking epic. You know what? I'm excited about this when I'm thinking about doing it. I say we get us an MHOG team together, go over to Afghanistan, get some horses, and rule the world. Who's with me? Fellas, this has been a pleasure. But uh, I may be uh, going to throw some goats in some circles. I'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one. That's seven points removed for Gryffindor. And oh, a surprise finger in the Flippy one, flippy two, flippy three, aerial spready, flippy four, descending spready, bouncing jack in a box, spready, Sonya Blade hiking. Well, there we go. That was uh, the big one, a.k.a. Well, Rusty, a.k.a. the big one, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's how we got to do it. I'm so bad at this lately because, you know, this is our first time really, like, throwing these segments in, and I I appreciate Parrish being so fucking patient with us because we don't know what the fuck we're doing, man. We're new at this. It's a great show. I mean, you guys have your shit together. It's a good thing. We try. I I appreciate that very much, man. Uh, And, and, uh, you know, listen, you know, I've got to say that, I've been on your show, you know, once before, and 
had a blast doing the show then. You guys are professional. You know your shit too. I mean that 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 I like. I mean, you guys are obviously fans of the genre. Yeah. And uh, that means a lot because for those of us who work in the genre, we have a love for it. Okay. Um, we're not making Johnny Depp or Brad Pitt money. So <laughs> right. what? Obviously. That's a shame. But, That's bullshit. But 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 by God, we we make enough to pay a few bills, and we love the genre, and we also love the fact that at conventions like the cult classic convention, you know, we get to meet other people who also grew up at the drive-in or at the walk-in or in front of the TV set with VHS or DVDs, whatever, watching the horror films. That it's it's the horror genre is a genre that brings together all different kinds of people, you know, people that would otherwise maybe never speak to each other. Okay. I, you go to conventions, you see lawyers and doctors yeah. that are fans of the genre and they're talking the horror genre with the guys or the gals with the Mohawks and the purple and green hair. Right. And, right. Yeah. Like from like the death metal and bands I, I, I'm and shit. Thinking, how cool is that? Right? Yeah. Well, think, this, this type of uh, the industry too, in the, in this genre, as you said, it, it, you're not just getting fans, you're getting your fans become family. You know, because they're, they're they're following you and they're 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 watching the the industry. And then you've got the new ones coming up. You know, it, you know, you like like Wayne's little guy. You know, <laughs> he's going to come up and and he's going to be going. I remember when Daddy was, you know, uh, talking this and showing me these movies when I wasn't supposed to be watching them. But, right, and and, yeah. and taking and and actually <laughs> taking pictures with these people because I have pictures with you know with me, him, and my wife with. Uh, um, uh, uh, what the hell, uh, Freddy Krueger and uh, Billy Pond and and you know Rusty's actually in full makeup from Mister Blister holding my kid up as a baby. It's so fucking funny. Oh. <laughs> he he's yeah, also well, you've seen the film now, okay? I mean, you know that 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 scene in the film with the baby. Yes. When we shot that. Oh yeah. God, you know that that was a scene that I was like, I gotta admit, I I was. <laughs> I will say, unco- yeah, uncomfortable would be a good word. And Billy okay. just laughed at me. And, you know, it's like, dude, come on now. You're going to, yeah, we're going to shoot this. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, well, I, could, I could see where those moments would be a little off. Right, a little, little, little not feeling so good. I mean, like like the scene, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, The Human Centipede 2. Uh, you know what? I haven't. <laughs> I've heard about it. But, yeah, there's a baby scene in there that made me feel awfully uncomfortable uh and uh you know it was a fake baby of course you know it wasn't nothing real it was not but still it looked really real and it was fucking terrible with these type of movies you know you 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 can watch happy movies to get happy you watch um funny movies to laugh you know just comedies and, and stuff like that but you you can go through every emotion but when you get to 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 this this genre of movie a lot of times you're getting more than what you expect. You know, you're getting there's there's times where you're actually laughing. There's times well, where you might be right. crying. You know, and and then there's times you're gonna go ooh. Yeah, yeah. Weird. You go through your whole emotions, <laughs> like your whole gambit. You know. That's that's kind of the cool thing about the horror genre. It's like riding the roller coaster. You know, yeah. you get on the ride, you scream, you 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 know, you, some people may throw up. Even I don't know. Right. <laughs> it's possible. It's but possible. bottom line, when the ride's over. Doesn't matter how loudly you screamed or how scared you were, or whatever people say. God damn, that was fun. Let's do it again. You know, yeah. and yeah. certainly coming from a horror fan myself, I grew up. You know, little kid and yeah, 
sneaking in theaters or getting people to carry me to drive-ins to see films that I was too young to see, but I loved them, right? Right. Uh, and that's that's what it's about, man. And ironically, the, the scene with the baby in Circus of the Dead, I've watched it with many audiences, and you know what? It elicits laughter. <laughs> the way Ryan so masterfully just kind of like, he kind of looks at it and then like the basketball, you know, it's, kinda, yeah. it's like, you know, and in the film, it, it plays differently on screen than the way it was shot, which again, that, you know, goes sure. to show you, you, you never know. Right. right. But I, I'm very proud for Billy that the, uh, cause Billy's a great guy and he's like a brother to me. Um, I didn't really know him that well before circus, but after circus, certainly throughout and subsequently, he has become family, and uh, I'm proud that this vision came to life and has been embraced so well by so many people. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it was it was a it was a really good movie, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I'm just so happy that I got to meet you guys and actually become friends with everybody because it was you, a blast. You guys yeah. are so awesome, and like I tell Billy, you know, anytime you guys ever want to come down to New Orleans and just hang out, let me know. You know. I will. I, I did a film in New Orleans, uh, probably ah, it's been four years ago, and I didn't know anybody, obviously. So I kind of went roaming about by myself, and then, you know, kind of realized, well, on Bourbon Street, if you're by yourself, and it's you know, it's not midnight, a good, not necessarily. Not a good, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. You got to be hanging out with some people, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, well, I'm, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to the new project, uh, yes. Riffs, coming yeah, out. Also, watch for. Uh, Hair metal shotgun zombie massacre. Uh, I, I am in that for sure. I have to watch that hands down. Yeah, that's coming out. Uh, play Bob Bastard in that, and uh, watch for Embankment, where I play the guy who's uh, basically pinned in his car, based on the true story. Wow. Uh, has, goes off an embankment and has a uh, a tree branch actually penetrate his chest. He can't move. He's trapped in his car for an extended period of time. It, oh wow. It, it's kind of one of those one person trapped in the car movies, but based on an actual incident. So that's, that's, that's weird. Yeah. Um, and like I said, uh, my thanks to you guys for having me on the show again. I, of I, course, I Parrish. Coming on. Look, man, you well, you are more than welcome to come on anytime. And if you just want to come on and shoot the shit with us, you're always welcome. Well, I'll take you up on it, man. I, like I said, I really enjoy it. And, uh, I enjoy, you know, like, like I say, talking the genre, and I can get off onto perhaps other subjects. Uh, Always. Know, French oh, yeah. Davidians, who the hood of the What a way to start the show. <laughs> <laughs> True life horror. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to thank you guys for joining us on this show. Uh, we uh, hope you guys enjoyed our little segments we threw in and out there. Um, we also really want to thank again, like thanks Parrish for, for coming back on the show. Uh, like I told you, you are always welcome, my friend. And any, any time you just want to shoot the shit or hang out or anything, you're always welcome here, man. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it. And I enjoyed it. Enjoyed the talk. Sweet. So anyway, I was your host, Wayne. And I'm the rum guy. And I'm Parrish Randall, the actor from somewhere in Texas. That's right. <laughs> and remember, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to keep it, keep it, keep it middle. <laughs> Don't
That's it.